surprise. We know we said we were going on break, but we wanted to come to you with a special episode release in celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which was just a couple of days ago, um, and heralding the upcoming beginning of February, Black History Month. Uh, We wanted to share this very special interview with you all that we did about a month ago, and we think you're going to really enjoy it. I'm Autumn Brown, queer science fiction writer, a theologian, mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in Minneapolis. And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown. I have written books, and I'm part of the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, and um, I, am, I pay rent in Detroit, Michigan. This is How to Survive the End of the World, our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. And we are so excited and grateful and just beyond thrilled, even enlightened, um, to have two very, very, very special guests joining us for our show today. Um, We have um, incredible Black Buddhist teachers, Lama Rod Owen and Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, joining us for the show. Lama Rod Owens is an author, activist, and authorized Lama, i.e. Buddhist teacher, in the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism, and is considered one of the leaders of his generation of Buddhist teachers. He holds a Master of Divinity degree in Buddhist studies from Harvard Divinity School, and is co-author of Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. Owens is the founder of Bhumisparsha, a Buddhist tantric practice and study community. And he has been published and featured in several publications, including Buddha Dharma, Lion's Roar, Tricycle, the Harvard Divinity Bulletin. And he's offered talks, retreats, and workshops in over seven countries. Lama Rod facilitates undoing patriarchy workshops for male-identified practitioners in Brooklyn and Boston. His next book project will explore transformative anger and rage and is due out June 2020. Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams was once called the most intriguing African-American Buddhist by the Library Journal and one of our wisest voices on social evolution by Krista Tippett. She is an author, maverick, spiritual teacher, master trainer, and founder of Transformative Change. She's been bridging the worlds of personal transformation and justice since the publication of her critically acclaimed book, Being Black, Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace. Being Black was hailed as an act of love by Pulitzer Prize winner Alice Walker and a classic by Buddhist teacher Jack Kornfield. Her co-authored book, Radical Dharma, alongside Lama Rod Owens, is a powerful wake-up journey that is igniting communities, activists, Buddhists, and beyond, to have the conversations necessary to become more awake and aware of what hinders liberation of self and society. The Radical Dharma events that have emerged from the book, Connections, Circles, and Conversations, have initiated profound healing and deepened commitment to dismantling oppression across lines of race, class, gender, sexual orientation, and other divides. Ordained as a Zen priest, Reverend Angel is a sensei, the second black woman recognized as a teacher in the Japanese Zen lineage. 
She is a social visionary that applies wisdom teachings and embodied practice to intractable social issues at the intersections where race, climate, and economic justice meet. She coined the name for the field of transformative social change and sees it as America's next great movement. In recognition of her work, Reverend Angel received the first Creating Enlightened Society Award from the international Shambhala community. I'm just so grateful that you all joined us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Yay, welcome. So um, your amazing book, your collaboration on the book Radical Dharma has been widely read and celebrated by Buddhists and non-Buddhists alike. We were wondering if you could share a bit about what led you into this collaboration and what community has grown up in the wake of the book. Um particularly because a part of the development of the book involved these conversations that you hosted um, in a bunch of different communities. So uh, interested to know a little bit about how those communities have continued growing and unfolding. Rod, you take part one, I'll take part two. Okay, Reverend Angel. (laughs) So yeah, my story begins in, you know, pretty much 2014 on the summer of Ferguson, summer of Israel bombing the Gaza Strip, and also the summer of me actually transitioning back to Boston from D.C., where I'd been teaching for about two and a half years, um, you know, running my own uh, meditation center in Sangha. And in this kind of transition back, really like feeling into this need to... Uh, become much more active as a Dharma teacher in this new emerging movement for Black Lives, but really not knowing how to do that. Um, And having a lot of questions, having a lot of confusion. um, And really, you know, in that period, and this was like late July, early August, you know, coming back into contact with Reverend Angel, who we had, you know, we had met maybe a year ago, um, and had started getting reconnected um, during this transition for me. And just coming back together and just kind of like coming back into this dialogue that we had started a year ago, but like, but the dialogue was being informed by this urgency that was happening around us. Um, and for me, that was, you know, really the beginning of what people, um, are, you know, considering like radical dharma, you know, was our our conversation together, which was later, you know, uh, you know, kind of captured um, by um, a magazine called Buddha Dharma. So that's part one. Mm. Cliffhanger. <laughs> and I'll say from, for me, the... It was really apparent that there was, as the Black Lives Matter movement was emerging and changing and pivoting and um, having to be responsive to the, you know, kind of egregious uh, violence and aggression against black bodies, uh, what was apparent to me is the something that, that had been a long a thread for a long time is like where where in the course of 
uh, the movements of people coming up that were queer, that had been pushed outside of churches, that had put, been pushed outside of or left behind in, term, in spiritual communities. Like, where was the spiritual heart of our movements? Uh, and that, uh, you know, where was the thing that quelled that anger, that uh, healed the wounding, you know, even as we did the work of, under, you know, understanding that it was necessary and and urgent, as as Lamarad said, for us to confront systems in a way that uh, you know hadn't been happening for a while in a in a movement form. You know, we had a lot of disparate things happening, uh, but really, Black Lives Matter kind of brought our sense of movement, I think, back together in a way that was palpable. But also, I I felt you know having lived this life as a Dharma teacher the loss, the significant loss of the sense of the healing and what kind of healing, like, you know, healing in an explicit way, healing uh, and, and a regenerative sense that, uh, that the work was, could be founded and grounded in, uh, in Dharma, like in truth, so, so that we were kind of going back and forth between like, okay, here's the work over here, you know, shout and and push and uh, struggle for what we want. And then here is maybe healing over here. Here's maybe self-care over here. But how does how did the work, you know, and Adrian Marie knows like we were in this conversation about transformative change, right? Like how change happened in a way that was transformative in and of itself. Like how do we do this work in a way that transforms us, transforms the system, um, and and not not deplete us and kill us at the same time and and of course at the same time you know, as part of these Buddhist communities where uh, there was extraordinary power in teachings and opportunity for liberatory teachings and uh, you know just an overwhelm of whiteness an overwhelm of white supremacy like a, a kind of stealing of the air of the the possibility of the breath that uh, became the, you know, the mantra of the movement, you know, I can't breathe. And there we were in a liberatory teaching that was stealing the breath out of the possibility of liberation. And so it felt like these, um, and so, we, the, you know, we needed the movement in one place and we needed the, the deep liberatory um, rest in another place. And so for me, that was a driving piece of like, how do we have these worlds not come together? Cause that like, I'm not interested in that. Like, how do we have these worlds come to understand that they have each have something for each other, that uh, we're made more whole uh, in movements by the rooting and spirit. And we're made more uh, complete in our possibility for liberation in by understanding that it, our our social reality and and the reality of of justice uh, is what liberation is about. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I'm really I'm really grateful that y'all did this project that you found each other um, and that you're sort of pushing this edge and continuing to push this edge and. You know, we were as we were preparing for the show, we kept sort of joking like, oh, my God, we're going to get to do the Black Buddhist show. Like We're doing the Black Buddhist show. And then I was like, <laughs> I wonder if y'all actually identify as like Black Buddhists. Like, is that the way that you would call yourselves? Um, and, you know, I know that identity it's very easy for us to slot people into identity boxes from outside of, of each other. And so I was curious, is that how you would identify yourselves? And if yes, I'd love to hear this about the space that you're carving out 
in Buddhism for blackness. Um, and if not, you know, if there's something else or more nuances, we'd love to hear about those nuances. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, and I have no problem identifying as a black Buddhist. Um, and I think that identity is being created moment by moment. Um, I don't, you know, there's no template, really, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that I am deeply informed by being, you know, kind of brought up in the South um, and being brought up, you know, within a community of poor black people, you know, and that's a really intense um, kind of identity location for me because it actually taught me a lot about how to be in the world and how to, to practice a kind of resiliency um, and a survival um, and that's and that's what I bring into like this this whole position of being a black Buddhist in the world um, as well, you know. And and in, in terms of like Buddhism too, it's like my Buddhism are you know I often say my Dharma is always shifting, it's always uh, uh, evolving, you know. And so I'm not just you know really I'm not really just a Buddhist, you know. Everyone's you know always joking with me these days because they think I'm becoming like like a Hindu practitioner, we know, which is kind of true. Like I'm kind of like, well, and could you tell us like, what is the, what, are, what does that mean for people who are like not deeply steeped in the practice of Buddhism or the practice of Hinduism? Yeah. Like for me, it's, it's not just the Buddha. It's not just, um, meditation, but it's more of a tantric, um, orientation, tantra, meaning, you know, uh, a practice and orientation towards, you know, a kind of mysticism. Yeah. Um, but that mysticism is held by the practices of working with the subtle body energy, working with mm -hmm. esoteric yoga, working with deities, working with um, plant medicine um, as well. It's It's touching into this unseen world uh -huh. in a way that is Ooh. very powerful, very direct, but also super risky, you know, um, and volatile. I mean, it's extremely volatile. Yes. And this is why for me, teachers and guides and yes. mentors are so incredibly important for me, you know, and blackness is informing all of this along the way. You know, which is, I think this is why I'm showing up in such an interesting, unique way in the world. Like when people say black Buddhists or when people apply this term black Buddhists for myself and Reverend Angel, I think that, you know, I see us occupying a very dynamic, versatile and evolving positionality within American Buddhist spiritual, you know, um, communities right now you know um i think we're you know as reverend angel has already been pointing out you know and, and as, as we point out in radical dharma we there's a way in which you know our ethic is to bridge the social and well to to bridge the relative and the ultimate together you know um you know, as Reverend Angel has, you know, um, has said many times, it's it's there's no ultimate liberation without social liberation. Right. You know. 
and we have to work with that complexity. So I think that's what it means for me, definitely, to be a black Buddhist is to actually hold that intense complexity Mm -hmm. um, all around, you know, and to wake up sometimes and to say, oh, you know, I don't know how I'm identifying, but I know that I'm trying to just like reduce violence and I'm trying to be as compassionate and loving as possible. But I'm also just trying to also tell the truth, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. to try to to own up to the things that I'm experiencing and feeling in the moment, you know, and regardless of if it looks messy or not, this is just kind of how it is. That's true. So <laughs> like it often looks the messiest mm-hmm. when it's, we're doing the best work. <laughs> what about for you, Angel? Yeah. You know, I think of I think I most often think of myself as the un-Buddhist. I, I think um, <laughs> that's great. And that's that's like a really uh, like like that's a choice. I think there's a a couple of different ways that that speak to my orientation overall. I think about being an un-Buddhist, and I I talk about this idea of being atapos, which means um, out of place. And so, um, and and that Socrates said that all philosophers, and I think philosophers these days are uh, are activists, um, that. Socrates says that all activists uh, had to be out of place in some kind of way because that's because to be out of place is to tell the tr- is to give yourself permission to tell the truth because being in place to belong to something requires you to uh, adhere to a certain amount of untruths a certain amount of stories or narratives that are part of the binding together of whatever that group or community or organization or so on and so forth is. Um, and and in order for me to be in a in a whole truth in a radical dharma means to be out of place. So I I practice um, actively being out of place and unBuddhist uh, to push the edges of that complexity. And I think you know I was listening to Lama Rod and it's like he landed exactly at the place that I think I'm most um, holding and and in the practice of is giving people through by pulling by pulling threads of blackness right the thread which i can't not do because that's what it means to to be black in america like i'm i'm holding blackness like i am blackness i for a long time i would say i don't do people of color spaces i am a people of color space like i don't have to i don't have to lead a quote-unquote people of color space because like i'm here and that means it's a people of color space by nature like i change the room which blackness changes Mm. the room Mm. of uh, of any space that it goes into when it's inhabited freely. And so uh, to be inhabited freely, the, I, I thread the teachings of the historic teachings of the Buddha, but all Dharma teachings, really, all teachings that are about the truth. And I make it my business to understand Dharma uh, wherever I see it, there was some point I was just speaking about this that I uh, I was in a thick uh, and and you know coarse rub rub I had a lot of rub conversation with my root teacher and my you know no, no content necessary but suffice it to say I got off and I was like you know white folks think they own everything and they think they own Buddhism and they think they own Zen and so so be it you you go ahead you can own Buddhism and you can own Zen because you everybody white folks think like this is how you do Zen like 
uh, wet and appropriate mm-hmm. <laughs> teaching from somebody else and then are the arbiters of like h- how it happens. And I was like, fine, you could, because oh, I'm not trying to have this conversation. I feel like I'm in the sandbox and I don't want to be in the sandbox anymore. So you can o- try to own Buddhism and you can try to own Zen, but you cannot own Dharma. Mm. And so I've lived inside of the notion and the container and the framing of Dharma and that complexity of what it means to live and navigate the space between the relative and the absolute. Um, that like that that whole truth is is something about this really, as Lama Rod said, dynamic living into the the what it means to both be a a black body, right? Uh, speaking through the teachings of Buddhism to be a person that is speaking and has the language and capacity to speak the teachings of the Buddhist and through through a black lens, right? Like that's actually two different directionalities, right? Like rooting in one and then speaking through to another. And to hold the, compl- the, compl- the alive complexity of what all of that means, to hold the complete truth of like radical love for everyone and all beings and one, and also to hold the truth of the necessity of loving blackness unto itself mm. as a distinct and specific and particular and morphing and not monolithic and yet somehow also really, really palpable truth, right? Like that blackness is a truth that, that can't be bound or held or contained or be expressed as monolithic, uh, but, it, but it's also unique and specific and we know it when we see it and when we feel it and when we smell it. And I think that when we express the liberated blackness uh, through the teachings of the Buddha, then it actually gives everybody, every other body, access to liberation Mm. for themselves. Yes. Beautiful. Mm. That Kumbahi River Buddhism. That's a black feminist statement if I ever heard it. Exactly. I love that we went to the same Because, place. you know, black, black folks weren't meant to be free, right, in this land. And so if we are free, it, it hearkens the That's truth right. of freedom for everyone. Right. Like, if we are liberated, it, it says that it's possible for everyone because there's such systemic intent to yes. keep us from being liberated. So I feel like, you know, like Lama Rod said, it's like, we're, we are, like, so messing with not just the Buddhist space, yes. like, we're messing with spaces of yeah. what it means of liberation, um, you know, we're, we're, we're saying something, I think in many ways, mm. and I think this is unfolding, we are saying something about what it means to be, to be black and liberated. Therefore we are saying something yes. about liberation yes. altogether. And you're saying that in a time of, um, <clears throat> intense change and transformation politically, globally, um, and, and, you know, because our show is very focused on apocalypse, um, we were really curious to hear y'all's perspective on, um, on this moment and what it means to be teaching liberation um, rooted in like a liberatory understanding of blackness at a time of apocalypse, a time of like... Um, a, a time of global transformation where there are, you know, where there are parts of our society or systems within society that are 
that are grasping and holding so tightly um, to the old way. Um, and yet there is this inevitable birthing of something new that is unfolding. Um, and the, you know, the practices that you, that you both are teaching are so critical to being fully present to that birthing. Um, but yeah, so we, we're just curious to know what is your, what your perspective is on trying to teach liberation inside of apocalypse. Yeah, I, I think so much these days I'm coming from a position of being a prophet, um, but I'm also trying to avoid being stoned to death. So mm. it's just, it's a, it's a tight balance there. It's so hard out here. It's hard out here for a prophet. <laughs> hard out here for a prophet. Hard for, uh, exactly hard. You know, because I, you know, feeling I feel very deeply into this. You know, this. Uh, energy of the apocalypse, this energy of unveiling, this energy of truth-telling, you know, and knowing that this truth, you know, that people aren't ready for the truth and that the unveiling of truth will inevitably mean the end of people's lives, you know, um, and to hold that truth and to, to communicate that, like, not all of us are going to make it. You know, and that's not what the apocalypse means. The apocalypse doesn't mean that everyone's going to get there. It means that, like, if you're ready, you're going to get there, you know. Um, and, you know, and for me, it's been, you know, a period of just, like, mourning all of that, you know, allowing my heart to break, mm-hmm. you know. And that breaking of my heart actually helps me to connect to the fear, the anxiety, the suffering, the discomfort that so many people are experiencing right now. Um, and, you know, and to, to help people to understand that this is the process, like the, the breaking away, the breaking down, the heartbrokenness. This is, this is the path forward into this new way that we have to start living into um, right now. And that's, you know, and that's like my dharma of transformation currently you know and i have to keep it simple i have to keep it direct um but i have to keep it very authentic um for me this is how i manage the apocalypse you know it's just by allowing all these old ways that i've been invested in to kind of fall away to break open and to allow uh the discomfort to to arise and to have that discomfort held held by you know a sense of deep love a sense of deep compassion for myself and um and a sense of deep compassion and love for everyone else around me um to keep my heart tender mm-hmm. yeah and it's not like we can't have fun either as well so like having fun is really definitely part of <laughs> Where I'm helping people. <laughs> it's such an important part of the yeah. world. <laughs> you know, you know. Speaking of pleasure activism, <laughs> yeah. You know, let's like do it. Let's get out there and like actually. And this is tantra here, so pleasure becomes the path to liberation. Yes. You know. Yes. And but it has to be this mm-hmm. kind of you know. ethical kind of mature expression of pleasure. You know, it's not just let's just like do it. And yeah. lose it, you know. No, it's no. It's like let's get focused. Let's channel this energy because this energy is so important. Yes. It's so vital, you know. I think that's what I learned growing up, you know, mm-hmm. in the South. It's like, 
you know, let's use our joy, let's use our pleasure to get free. You know, let's let's use it to get closer to God. Yes. You know. Yes. And I want us to return to that. Mm. You know that there's there's God. There's like that ecstatic yeah, experience. Exactly. You yes. Know, there's the a divinity. Mm-hmm. Well, it's ex- exciting because the question I am sitting with is. You know, I know for myself what meditation and mindfulness have done. And I think in a lot of ways, meditation and mindfulness are part of why I I got to pleasure activism, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, there's something inside of me that predates trauma and that predates uh, or a traumatic concept of my identity, like a traumatic understanding of blackness or queerness or fatness or any of these things. There's something inside of me that can connect to something that is pleasure. Um, And I still see that in this moment of fear and race war and genocidal um, climate decisions and things like this, that it can be very hard to make a case for people to sit and to get still and to turn in. And so I wanted to hear from both of you, um, why meditate right now? Like what what is the case for that mindfulness and meditation um, from where you're sitting and from what you're inviting people to? Yeah, you know, I think of, um, as I understand it, that apocalypse means revealing. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, we have all these other ideas of like, uh, you know, it's it's the end of the world, but it's the end of the world as we know it, right? And exactly like when we when we think about uh, profit, uh, one of the things that we we teach and communicate in radical dharma, we have this like RD five, which is like the framework of RD five is a framework for liberation, and it's it's so that people can uh, try on what it means to get a lens on liberation from where they stand, because, you know, we're, we're Buddhist or un-Buddhist or whatever we're doing. And, you know, we're fat and we're black and we're queer and we're all, and, you know, and everybody's not like that. And so we wanted to be able to communicate yeah. what, how do you recognize a radical Dharma in your life and cultivate a radical Dharma in your life? Um, and so we talk about the, f- the fourth thing is being prophetic praxis. And so we talk about the, the, mm. the the, the praxis, like the where the rubber meets the road of being a prophet is about telling the truth of these times. We often think of prophets as talking about the future, but really what prophets are doing, which is why they get stoned, is they're actually talking about now, right? They're speaking into what's exactly. happening now. Exactly. Right? I'm, they I'm are, praise like, dancing. They praise are dancing. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're they're <laughs> actually, all. right, they're revealing the apocalypse that is happening while everybody else is like, you know, holding on to, I would be, you know, we say old ways, but I want to say untrue ways, right? They're, it's not, they're not just old ways, they're untrue ways. And so what, what we're in the skirmish of is uh, people trying to hold the veil down, right? And the apocalypse is, is about like revealing and revealing and revealing. And meditation gives us access to, uh, the, to, to, a, to a revelatory lens, a way in which to see ourselves in a way that's more whole and more true. Uh, beyond information right beyond like like intelligence you know as in like in our heads beyond what's been fed to us because we're all conditioned right so we're we're conditioned and so who were we and this is very zen right like who were we before the traumatic relationship right the the traumatic um holding or relationship i love the way that you said that 
Adrian Marie, um, of our identity, right? What, yes. Right. We that identity was complete and whole and um, and 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 lip and free, and then we uh, were given a a, a traumatized a traumatizing uh, relationality to our mm. sense of our identity. Uh, and so meditation is about revealing, right? Meditation is in and of itself an apocalypse, right? It, it, is, mm. it is a path to live into the, the, into the apocalypse. It is a path to revealing the truth of who we are uh, uh, beyond the ways that we have uh, been, it, it, our, that truth has been obscured for, for us by conditions, by the conditions of Racism, conditions of white supremacy, the conditions of um, of anti queerness, uh, the the position, you know, or just like you know, like the uh, the binaries, right? All of the binaries, like what, like is so so like clear for me. It's like mm. the binaries are the are the are the hell realm, right? The, the binaries are the place that keeps us from being free. Yes, yeah, yes, and I so the, and so to be able to reveal. We don't know what pleasure is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, until, until we actually are able to see ourselves in a way that is unveiled, right? And we don't even we don't even understand what our pleasure is, and so we have these debased ways of thinking about having fun, rather than mm-hmm. these ways that are generative and that feed our our energy body and feed our yes. sense of liberation and capacity and wholeness and fullness, and so. I don't know what else you would make time for, right? Other than <laughs> meditation, like frankly, all things considered, because it is, it is, it is like what is now. It, it it is revealing the truth of who you are, and and that's everything about being free. Yes, beautiful. I'm curious because I know for myself, when I sit and meditate um one of the things that becomes like immediately clear to me is how much fear exists inside my body and in my mind and in in my systems and I'm wondering if you all can speak to um how how a practice of meditation helps to confront fear or to be with fear um particularly because so much of the work you both do is around, you know, race, gender, sexuality, class, um, all, all of these binaries, all of these systems that, that function primarily through, um, fear and violence. Um, how do you, how, how does meditation support us to, um, to work with our fear, to exist with our fear? I think that what meditation gives it helps us to come into uh, an awareness of is that there's nothing to there is nothing to fear. Um, that it helps us be comfortable in our own bodies. That we and, and part of how it does that is it does that is that it has us to confront the ways in which we spin stories and narratives, uh, and, 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 and actually that most of those stories and narratives are actually other people's narratives and stories. And, and that the fear is generated not from the truth of who we are, the fear is generated from the stories we have about the truth of who we are. Uh, 
And so meditation allows us to become comfortable with ourselves, to make friends with, our, with ourselves, with our mind, right? To actually make friends with the fact that our mind is constantly uh, regurgitating and propagating these, this propaganda <laughs> about, about, about who we are. And we, we kind of like watch all of that and see all of it and see how like wild it is and see how like unbridled uh, it is and how intense it is and how also unchecked it is and unexamined it is. And that itself is a, is a source of curiosity. And so I think the antidote to, to fear is curiosity. So we develop a kind of curiosity just by the practice of watching and becoming aware of our mind. I was just saying, um, I just started, uh, it's not actually public yet, it would be public by the time you put this out there, as a senior advisor to Mindful, which is a meditation studio in uh, New York. They have a couple, two studios in New York and, uh, and some online uh, stuff, Mindful video and so on. And I was talking to someone, I said, you know, the great thing is that if you are willing, if you're even willing to look at your mind, right, you walk in the door, you're of, of a meditation center, of a studio, whatever else it is uh, in, your, in your meditation closet, like you're 50% ahead of the game, right? Just the willingness, just the willingness to look. And then if you actually sit down and do the work of looking, you're 80%, right, like ahead of the game of this, uh, this, this quest for humanity and for, for wholeness. And so like that's the major part of it. Like you're 80% there just by, by sitting down and being willing to say like, oh, this is what the fuck is going on here. And this shit is driving me. Adrian Marine, like back in the day when we were doing Rockwood, like one of the things I came up with is like, how do we explain this? How do we, I was like, I don't want to teach activists to meditate. I have to tell them why it matters, right? And so I developed this whole little, you know, cartoon thing to help people understand that really, this uh, this in, inner me is driving your life, right? It was like this whole thing. It's like inner me is driving your life. You think you are driving your life, but actually you turn around, you look and there's roadkill left and right. And so then you have to figure out, well, if I'm intending to like get it together to, you know, to, to be kind, to be compassionate, but I'm leaving the roadkill, if you will, behind me of decimated relationships, um, you know, fragmented fragmented uh, uh, partnerships with, you know, in, in movement spaces, in organizational spaces, in home spaces, if I'm leaving fragmented relationships and, and all of that. But I have this other intention, like where is the gap, right? And so we like try to go and like find the gap. We mind the gap between what our intentions is and what what it is we are hoping to sh how it is we're hoping to show up in the world and like what what's actually happening and what we realize is like there's this whole storyline like multiple storylines not even our own storylines that are driving us and meditation gives us curiosity and so that quells the fear is just to realize the truth of like there is like somebody else behind the fucking curtain <laughs> right and all of this stuff that i thought that was going down is the machinations of like this other system like controlling me and then the question is what do i do about it beautiful yeah well you know it's you know often when i look at fear you know working with fear of my body fear of my mind you know it always leads me into having to negotiate trauma yes 
you know, so, so much of like those experiences that we're afraid of is really trauma based, you know, experiences, you know, it's racial trauma, trans historical trauma, identity based trauma, you know, it's complex trauma, simple traumas, it's, it's, it, it, it can be a variety of traumas, but you know, that, that fear can be, you know, a symptom of that, you know, mm-hmm. and for me early on, when I was really working with that, you know, I, you know, I was learning how to be in relationship to that fear and to that trauma that was around that fear. Um, and meditation was actually helping me to hold the space mm. for these experiences. You know, holding the space really means that, like, I'm allowing these experiences to be there, but I'm looking at the ways in which I'm habitually reacting. Yes to what I'm experiencing and in that habitual reaction actually perpetuating these experiences um these experiences of discomfort that I keep having you know and in that holding space I also had to learn how to love Mm -hmm. the fear and to love the trauma you know and that's something that's (laughs) Really hard for people like, to slow kind of it get down. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Ooh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that trauma. Love um, that trauma. Okay, tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> so, love, we can, you can also use the word acceptance. I have to accept these things that I'm habitually pushing away, you know, and in my, so in my next book, Love and Rage, uh, which will be out in June, hey. you know, I'm really, yeah, I'm, I'm pushing this, the language of love and making it even more accessible, you know, for people. I'm using acceptance as a way, you know, like how do I accept the things that like I'm always a run, running away from? You know, how can I let those things be there? Because if I don't allow those things to be there, then I won't actually understand what they really are. You know, and that's just like basic meditation, as Reverend Angel was pointing out. It's like I can't I can't see what something really is if I'm always like avoiding it. You know, that's that's basic like Vipassana insight practice where you're like, okay, how do I actually gaze into the nature of this thing? Yes. Especially if it's you. You know, I think that that's such a big piece of what you you're speaking that really, I think, reverberates with a lot of how we have approached this podcast, because, you know, when we first started, like how to how to survive the end of the world, it was I think everyone was like, oh, how to build a bunker. And it was like, no, like how do you turn and face your own shadow? And how do you um, understand what it means to feel trust and offer trust and how do you remember to breathe and things like that that feel like these fundamental humaning skills, you know, that are like this is how we stay um, connected to what we are as a species and not just what we are as a trauma bodies mm-hmm. and then want to survive. You know, I feel like Octavia Butler is kind of the prophet that guides our work here and a lot of what she kept asking in her work in different ways was what is a compelling future not a perfect future not a utopian Mm -hmm. future but what is a future that is compelling to move towards and it's compelling to move towards a place where you are fully accepted or your wholeness is welcomed or where the complexity of who you are is welcomed and I I really love that and 
I feel so much in what both of you have been saying here around like there's a this slowing down and dropping in, slowing down, dropping in and and finding the the particles of pleasure, the particles of love, the particles of acceptance. And so there's a question I have here around attention and attention liberation. This is one of the ways I've been thinking about this is like really with meditation, mindfulness, and the other things, you're liberating your attention from what you have been socialized to think is important and matters and is you. You're liberating your attention and bringing it to what you think truly matters. And and how do we help people do that in this age of hyper-connected, rapid-fire, urgent crisis? Um, how do we help people still focus their attention and liberate their attention if if I think what we all would agree on is that liberation of attention is actually um, one of the roots of freedom. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, we have to, as leaders, as guides, as mentors, we actually have to model what it means to hold that attention. Word. To... Um, and people, and and people are watching all the time, you know, like people are watching us on social media. They're watching us walk down the sidewalk. They're watching us walk into the room to do a workshop or a teaching. Um, they're watching how we're holding ourselves, how we're holding that attention and how we're expressing that, that particular value um into the world around us um like i can't i i couldn't have done anything that i'm able to do now without the example of teachers and guides who were doing it before me because i wouldn't have believed in it yeah you know and i just i just love evoking um you know octavia butler you know and and the vision um, that she perpetually put out in her work of like this revolutionary way or this like this transformative way that we actually have to always come back into the moment because if it's it's the transformation like God is in the moment you know like if God has changed then we actually have to pay attention to that change you know and that's all is so moving for me. Beautiful. I hold a, for myself, a, a, I feel like a very significant pivot was to move from the overall framework of people are born and they have to strive in order to become one with the divine, to meet God, to, uh, you know, they had to become right? They had to become something. They had to become, uh, they had to become ascended. They had to be, you know, they had to get there, strive there, work their way there, uh, mm-hmm. earn their right uh-huh. uh, to, to, you know, the pearly gates of heaven or whatever else it is that people, wherever else it is people are going. And I pivoted from that to fundamental goodness to the the basic sense of like oh we are already whole and beautiful and perfect Mm, uh and lovable and in all of our permutations and weirdnesses and strangenesses and flaws and foibles we are whole and 
uh, and are to be loved and and that what the work to do is to get the obscurations out of the way that keep us from being able to act fully in, out of that wholeness, right? And, and those things that have traumatized our view of ourselves that have invited disconnect from the yes. truth of that wholeness. And, uh, and so having, having made that pivot, what I feel deeply into and know to be true is that everyone wants to be free, that everybody wants to be liberated, that when they f feel, they taste the, the, you know, the nectar of liberation, right? It's a taste okay. that then people yearn for and that yearning itself is a, is a, an experience of feeling yourself called back to your own wholeness, right? That yearning is the recognition of one's wholeness mm. and then the impulse to move towards that wholeness, to return yes. to that wholeness. And, and so therefore, when I can communicate to people that, by, that there is a design in place to rob you of your attention so that you cannot be, so that you're distracted away from that yearning for wholeness, then people mm. gear up <laughs> and put their boots on and say, fuck this, whatever that mm -hmm. is. I don't even care what it is. And often it's white supremacy and often it's dominant, right? It's, it is systems of domination. They don't care right. what it is. They don't, they cease to care slowly, maybe, but they cease to care what it is giving them material and they want for in the way that we are designed to want for our liberation. And so that attention and, and understanding that our, mm. our attention and our ability to put our attention on what matters right. to us and find our way back to ourselves is what liberation is, is, is what the truth is, is the radical dharma, is what I uh, make an effort to communicate. And, and to Lamarad's La uh, words, and to communicate that not through just my words, but through my body and 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 how I hold space, uh, to to slow spaces down that we hold, uh, like in radical dharma circles or conversations, to slow them down in a way that yeah. people are not just like listening to me, and I'm making the gesture of like touch, you know stuff coming up my ears like it's all about my ears and my words and listening to me and I could see people's necks craning mm -hmm. towards me to listen and I try to invite them back into an experience that's embodied so that they're uh I'm transmitting as a, as a teacher as a guide as a communicator as a facilitator I'm transmitting the universal knowing of that liber liberation in my body by how I hold my body so that for that moment, that, that period of that time during that circle, that experience, yeah. maybe for just one minute, they feel that liberation in their own body and their necks crane back and they return to themselves mm. <laughs> instead of me. <laughs> And when we turn our attention to what matters to us, then we generate what, what I think of as love. Like then we are become more committed to giving the things that we we lo love that matter to us 
right? The things that we're accepting, we, we're committed to giving them space to be as they are. And that's what I think of as love. That acceptance is space. That acceptance uh, is love is space. And acceptance is space, right? And, and once we are willing to do the work of accepting something, we give it the space to be what it is. And that's transmuting that acceptance that Love Rod's talking about to, to love. Mm. Beautiful. And then we can love it all. We, we have to love it all, because what's outside? We're, we, you know, like Julia Butterfly Hill used to say, like, where is a way? What is outside of this, this field of life? The trauma is actually inside of the field of life. It's corrupting, but it is still part of this field of life. And to think that the, the work is to somehow, like, get rid of the trauma rather than uh, live through it and understand its rightful place in our unfolding mm. sets us on a very different path. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you both so much. Um, I feel Thank like, you. you know, we could uh, sit at your feet for, um, <laughs> or rather, I should say, sit back to back, side to side, um, side face to, to face, um, for for hours. Could I make an invitation? Yes, I I would love people to sit with us. We we it sort of quietly snuck out back in August, but the Radical Dharma audio book is out, and I've just been listening to it, and it is literally like sitting in this field of these these complexities and openings. And so I wanna invite everyone to, it is different to hear it in our voices and to have be able to actually have your voice liberated to do its own wanderings while our voices are, you know, speaking into these truths that are ours. It's, I, I think it's a, it's, it's just, it's just gorgeous. I was listening to. <laughs> and can, is it, is it like, can we find it on Audible? Like anywhere you get your audio books, you can go get Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love and Liberation. Yeah. And you can get Lama Rod and, and, and and Yasmin, Dr. Sai, yes, Dr. Yasmin Saidula and, and myself um, whispering into your ears about our complexity and our reality uh, while you discover your own. Oh, that sounds so dreamy. We are all going to do that now. <laughs> Thank you both so much for joining us and for being a part of our show. We love you. Love you too. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Under the World PC. We're also on Facebook at Under the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting patreon.com slash end of the world show. And another thing that you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are an iPhone person. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the beloved Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Y'all and Mother Cyborg. <laughs>